all that matters is. Wrong! This town deserves a better class. Heavy Metal Podcast. I'm gonna get a. If you do not listen, then the hell with you. Walk through the gate of consciousness. Part six. It's part six, y'all. The hexatic installment of our series on Ronnie James Dio. The semestral iteration. The sextuple episode. Actually, I got invited to join a sextuple episode one time when I accidentally walked into a swingers club I mistook for a subway. Glad I didn't order the foot long. <laughs> Who starts a podcast like that? Farragal would never act like this. Why can't you be more like your brother Farragal? Oh well. It's like I always say. Shoot for the moon, and if you miss, you'll land among the stars. Or the infinite vacuum of space that exists between them. Until your auxiliary life support systems fail, causing all the oxygen in your body to expand, rupturing your lungs and boiling you alive from the inside with your own blood. Yeah, eventually your body will die, but when you're entirely alone, drifting through the vacuous womb of perpetual night with nothing to comfort you but a penetrating sense of doubt and the regrets of a life that you left back on Earth because you barely seem to recognize it anyway once Cheryl left and took the kids with her, what's the difference? This is what I always say. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pod fix if you haven't already done so. And if you have, just create a new account and do it again. Okay, now that's how you start a podcast. So welcome to And Volume For All, a deeply irreverent and lovingly irreverent exploration of the history, philosophy, and future of the greatest music in the world, heavy metal. I am your host likely to succeed, Quinn. And you know what? God help you if you ever actually got that award in high school because <laughs> that's a death sentence right there, my friend. And speaking of death, again, I have to admit that the subject has been on my mind lately for obvious reasons, but also because of the podcast. This is the final episode of our holy deep dive into Ronnie James Dio, and it is on this episode that we have to come to terms with what it means to kill off your show's main character. It's always sad to have to let go of the story's protagonist, Walter White, Dexter, Roseanne. Okay, not always, but when it isn't Roseanne, losing someone whose life you've followed through every twist and turn, trial and tribulation, success and sacred heart, can be tough. And letting go of one's heroes is especially difficult. I had trouble letting go of Dave Mustaine after the Megadeth series, and he's still alive. But the benefit of being human is that we are able to look to those poets and philosophers of the past for a sense of comfort and perspective. And there is no greater poet or philosopher in my life than the weirdest, most brilliant of creeps who ever put pen to paper, my eternal champion, trademark, William Shakespeare. In Act 5, Scene 2 of the greatest fucking thing ever written, Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark, the title character of Shakespeare's magnum opus knows that he is walking into a trap, and more likely than not, his own death. Yet against the advice of his closest friend and counselor, Hamlet chooses to embrace his fate willingly, saying, 
there is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, it is not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Yes, it's a bit labyrinthian, but in essence, Hamlet is saying, we can never know what's coming for us, be it death or love, tragedy or triumph, a colony of ravenous groundhogs that pine after human flesh. There's just no way to tell. Things will change. It's inevitable. And old Billy Bob Shakespeare seems to be suggesting that we should embrace this state of affairs rather than shrinking from it. Hamlet comes to that realization too late, which is why it's a tragedy. But the inevitability of change, including the ultimate change, from life to death is what gives our existence meaning, right? If we didn't ever die and things just kept going, it wouldn't matter what we chose to do with our time because there would always be more of it. If I want to be known as the Scrabble guy because I'm just a butt slut for triple word scores and insist that this is how I am remembered, then I do, the inevitable end of my life makes that choice significant. But without death, even if I fuck up some Scrabble bitches for a billion years, my affinity for the game is meaningless because I can always choose to jump on a game of Hungry Hungry Hippos for the next billion years. I don't know if that's a great example or if it's the greatest example. Y'all can let me know your feelings at AV4APod. <laughs> well, that was weird. Uh... Whatever, I'm leaving it in. The big nasty point I'm trying to make here to lead us back into the life of Ronnie James Dio is that while his death was a loss for all of us, it also serves to highlight the significance of his life and the meaning in his actions. What he chose to do with his time teaches us about who he was as a human, what he believed in and valued, what he wanted to say and was willing to fight for. So. As you strap on your swim cap and size XXL arm floaties in preparation for our holy deep dive down into the midnight sea, just do me a personal favor and keep that quote from Hamlet in the back of your mind. I'm sure you've all committed it to memory at this point, but I'll come back to it before long if you need a refresher. Doubt it. This show and its characters mean a lot to me. Even Richie Blackmore. And maybe they do to you as well. I mean, why else would you listen? I'm no Farragal. So my hope is that going forward, together, we can embrace the inevitability of change, as Shakespeare would have us do, and reconsider or even reimagine the transition from a world with Ronnie James Dio to a world without him, in a way that isn't just your typical sad or saccharine goodbye. And perhaps we'll discover that while his body now rests in the earth of Forest Lawn Memorial Park in the Hollywood Hills, there may yet be an unwritten chapter or two left in the book of Ronnie James Dio. Well, more like two or three, because one of those chapters just footnotes, but like all things RJ Dio-centric, it'll be short. See? We can still have fun. We have like two decades before we have to say goodbye. All right, let's have a good time. Because at this point in our story, the year is 1992, also my favorite Tool song. The decade-long war for the soul of heavy metal has been won. The guerrilla freedom fighters calling themselves Thrash have emerged victorious through a multi-pronged campaign of politics, pugilism, and palm muting against the cat-eyed smolder of the imperial forces known as GLAM. 
but the Thracian victory did not come without compromises. In the early 90s, bands like Metallica and Megadeth had begun a tactical shift away from their revolutionary roots and were instead laying the groundwork for an empire of their own, failing to realize that though the pendulum of music history had finally swung decidedly in their favor in less than a year, after both bands had reached the pinnacle of their respective commercial and critical successes, gravity would reassert itself once again, and the new dominion of old thrash would be shattered by the simple and inevitable laws of motion. And while bands like Dokken, Rat, Cinderella, and Whitesnake had been summarily put to the wall, sorry, I thought, I thought maybe I'd get emotional in that moment, but yeah, nothing. Various splinter groups among the glamists still sympathetic to the heavily sequined crown were making something of a final stand. Poison's multi-platinum Open Up and Say Ah was number two on the U.S. Billboard charts, and in 1989, the Motley Crue from Motley Crue was still holding heavily garrisoned territory in the West with their first and only number one album from the same year, Dr. Feelgood. And while it can be said that the success of the album might make Motley Crue and the collapsing kingdom of glam think that Dr. Feelgood was the one that was going to make him feel all right, like any chemically induced state of euphoria worth experiencing, the last vestiges of glam metal were heading for the kind of crash that makes you wonder why you ever started buying drugs in the first place. Usually because of a really hot girl with a guy's name like Troy for some unexplained reason who refuses to kiss you but would throw out hand jobs like she was trying to make her end of the month quota. What was I talking about? Ah, yes. On August 28, 1990, a year to the day after the release of Dr. Feelgood, a little known band from a little known corner of the US released its debut album, Too Little Known Fanfare. That is, until an upstart entertainment program known as Music Television put the band's second single into its regular rotation, providing a spark for the musical revolution that would make Thrash's hard-won victory over glam seem like little more than a footnote in music history, or the kind of forgettable factoid that one might hear in an overwrought, self-indulgent intro to a podcast episode about an entirely different subject. The song was written and performed by none other than a recovering glam band out of Seattle, Washington that had recently changed their name to Alice in Chains. Their debut album, Facelift, would eventually go triple platinum and open the door to a new world order in music, spanning the furthest reaches of the known world. A heavy metal subgenre blended with punk, sprinkled with folk, and addicted to heroin. Grunge. Its reign over rock would last for nearly as long as the war between thrash and glam had been fought. And it all started exactly one year after the release of Dr. Feelgood by Motley Crue with Alice in Chains' second single, the Grammy-nominated Man in the Box.
yeah, so that went well. And if for any reason the thrashy glam-glams were reassuring themselves that this new sound was merely a blip on the musical radar, destined to amount to little or nothing, they would soon find themselves disabused of that notion when two former members of the bands Green River, Mother Lovebone, and Temple of the Dog formed another new band called Mookie Blaylock, which is awesome because I love basketball, and also awful because now they were in a band called Mookie Blaylock. And believe it or not, Mookie Blaylock actually opened for Alice in Chains on the facelift tour. The band, not the point guard, okay? I'll handle the stupid around here. You just relax. But a year after the debut from Alice in Chains, in August of 1991, Mookie Blaylock, the band, released their own debut album, and mercifully, under the new name of Pearl Jam. That song is called... What the fuck is that? Okay. Sorry. It's not called What the Fuck Is That. That one's on Vitology. The song I just played is called Why Go, off the album 10, which would eventually sell 13 million copies in the U.S. alone. And what follows is an absolute cavalcade slash avalanche slash butt truck of releases from the newly minted subgenre of grunge, when one fucking month later, Nirvana releases their sophomore record, Nevermind, which would ultimately sell over 30 million copies worldwide. Another fucking month later, Soundgarden releases their third album, Bad Motorfinger, which goes double platinum, a feat that they would multiply three times over in 1994 with Super Unknown. But just a little over a year after Bad Motorfinger, it's time for Alice in Chains to release their sophomore record, Dirt, which goes five times platinum in the U.S. in the same fucking month that a new act called Stone Temple Pilots, or NKOTB, get into the game with a debut record that goes platinum in the U.S. eight times over. Core.
Yes, that is sex type thing, which is not actually supposed to be sexy, in case you were thinking about serenading someone with that at karaoke. All of this happens between August of 1990 and September of 1992, a little over two years. I don't think there is a movement in modern popular music even closely comparable to grunge in significance or scale outside of the first British invasion in 1964, and not the one in 1812. That one still hurts. But long ago, we all agreed to disagree and felt that our time would be better spent working together to bomb the shit out of the Middle East. And look, I'm not even including all the chart-topping, multi-platinum, second-wave grunge bands like the Smashing Pumpkins, Candlebox, Bush, and Hole. Full disclosure, I'm having a tough time right now deciding whether Box, Bush, and Hole is a sex joke or a law firm joke. I want to make a choice, but I also kind of want to choose not to decide. So I, hold on, he's got a text from Getty Lee. Oh, okay, never mind. Anyway, if you were a heavy metal band from the 70s that then had a renaissance in the 80s and were hoping to just cruise into the 90s like Travolta sauntering into a dimly lit disco hall, which I assume you all are, the turn of events in popular metal-adjacent music that kicked off the new decade would be less than welcome news. As a culture, we hadn't hit that everything unironically cool in the past is unironically cool again because people just flew fucking planes into the World Trade Center and holy fuck, I just want to feel like I did before this happened. We were about a decade away from that. Things that were unironically cool in the past were, in the early 90s, the most ironic, least cool things in the history of things. After Mob Rules in 1981, Black Sabbath released four albums to steadily declining interest, critical praise, and album sales. 1983's Born Again saw a huge drop-off in the band's popularity, becoming the first Sabbath album that failed to achieve any sales certification in any country. And in 1986, on their 12th studio album, Seventh Star, Black Sabbath felt that it was probably time to make some changes and decided, as a band, to replace the band. Except for Tony Iommi. I think the other guys just voted that he should stay on and look after the amps. Seventh Star also earned the inglorious distinction, emphasis on the stink. Yeah, well, not every joke gets a second draft. I'm a busy man, and there's a ton of decent television. Seventh Star earned the inglorious distinction of being the worst-selling Black Sabbath album of all time. Until the next one came out, Eternal Idol in 1987. Headless Cross saw a bit of upward movement, but in the same way as when a corpse starts to bloat and the internal rot causes the belly to distend, swell, and inevitably pop, releasing its fetid stench out into the world. Or as it is more commonly known, Black Sabbath's 15th studio album, Tear. Should have been called Tearable. Okay, that was a third draft. There's no excuse on that one. Just think of that joke as My Tear, which in 1990 becomes the first of two Black Sabbath albums that failed to make an appearance on the U.S. Billboard charts and would be joined in 1995 by the other, Forbidden. Should have called it Forbidden from the Charts. <laughs> Fifth draft. Needless to say, the new decade was looking awfully grim for Black Sabbath. As for Ronnie James Dio, however, same. Don't know why I said however. 1990's Lock Up the Wolves was Dio's worst-selling album to date, and you can just see the numbers plummet after Last in Line. 
Sacred Heart sells about half the number of records as its predecessor, and 1987's Dream Evil, barely 10% of that. Lock Up the Wolves manages to make it into the US charts, but not for long, and Dio, now 49 years old, is playing to half-empty venues alongside his 17-year-old guitarist in Rowan Robertson, which just sounds sad. I can only imagine how James and Lars must feel. They've been playing next to a 17-year-old guitarist for the last 40 years. So again, if you were that heavy metal band from the 70s and 80s, barely staying alive in the 90s, and you want to make a new album that isn't just a desperate attempt to rekindle the old magic or jump on the grunge train, which is all new and fancy but going really slow because everybody aboard is super strung out, I would say that the absolute worst time to record and release that album is right at the end of that two-year window from 1990 to 1992. Let's say summer. Like June-ish, maybe the 22nd in the UK, 30th in the States, I don't know. That just feels right. Well, believe it or not, that's exactly what Black Sabbath decides to do. After parting ways with Sabbath nine years earlier, Geezer Butler returned on the back of a frozen giraffe he borrowed from Bill Ward, and Iommi decided he wanted to stick with Sabbath's current vocalist, Tony Martin, of Eternal Idol, Headless Cross, and Tear Blame. Wait, did I just say blame? I'm sorry, I meant to say shame. Don't turn it off, Doomy. Take your hand away from the pause button and put it back on your limited edition Tony Martin bobblehead where it belongs. I'm allowed to take one shot at the guy in the episode, okay? The other 14, you're gonna have to decide on a case-by-case -case basis if you wanna continue to live this lie, but that's between you and your god, Tony Martin. And rounding out the quartet on drums was former Rainbow member Cozy Powell, whose name I had to say because the term former Rainbow member applies to roughly 4,000 musicians across all seven continents. So Tony Martin joined Sabbath early in the studio to sing through some of the new material, but declined to join the band for a fourth record as he was steeped in the recording of his first solo album, which everyone loved and became an international sensation that I definitely bothered to look up. While on tour for Lock Up the Wolves, Geezer Butler joined Dio on stage to play Neon Knights. In a 2008 interview, Dio told John Wiederhorn, Always weed. Don't have to keep asking. I thought we quit way too early, even after Live Evil. I thought we'd do another blockbuster album and carry on for the rest of our lives. Actually, I heard that recently somewhere. Where was that? Where was that? Where did I hear that? Oh, right. It was deep inside my heart echoing the sound of my shattered dreams, Ronnie. James Dio continued, but after Geezer came and said Tony wanted to work together again, I jumped at the opportunity and one thing led to another. But one of the things that an earlier thing led to was Cozy Powell falling off the back of a horse. And that thing, in turn, led to a horse falling on Cozy Powell. Same horse. And the last thing that happened for Cozy Powell on Dehumanizer was getting his hip crushed by a falling horse and being replaced with Vinny Apice. No word on the identity of that third horse as Powell got it on loan from the band Kansas. I'll give you a second. You don't need it? Okay. So the lineup was set. They got the band back together. Mob rules. Picking up where they left off. And where they left off was really tense. They all fell right back into the Brits versus Yanks thing, traveling back and forth between the two countries, squabbling over production, content, Yanni versus Laurel, all the important questions. But let's zoom out for a minute here. Over the course of 20 years, Black Sabbath 
had had a series of career ups and downs, paranoid and technical ecstasy, heaven and hell, and seventh star. Dio, over the course of 30 years, however, had mostly a string of ups. From Ronnie and the Wrong Holes, he went on to Elf, and then on to Rainbow, and then on to Black Sabbath, and then on to his solo career. Dio's trajectory was ever upward, increasing in popularity, critical success, and earning power with each new career venture until about the last half decade. So maybe it was the professional piss trough that Sabbath and Dio found themselves in, or maybe it was the monopoly that grunge held over the musical landscape in 1992. Maybe it was the revival of creative acrimony between the reunited members of Sabbath's second lineup. But it could have also been the collective cultural anxiety the world was experiencing as it accelerated toward the promise of a virtual future, the World Wide Web becoming publicly available in the previous year. Or it could have been the mounting scandals of organized religion playing out daily on television for evangelists like Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, who was involved in a literal mounting scandal. Ask your parents, kids. Or maybe even it was Ronnie James Dio crossing what he thought would be the midway point of his life and coming face to face with the recognition that there may be fewer years ahead of him than there were behind. Whatever the reason, in June of 1992, Black Sabbath released what is arguably the heaviest, darkest, and certainly for Ronnie James Dio, angriest record in the entire Sabbath canon, their 16th studio album, Dehumanizer, the final entry into the trilogy of Black Sabbath records fronted by Ronnie James Dio. And nowhere is the confluence of tensions that brought this monstrous birth of nihilistic rage to light more palpable than on the album opener, where Dio gives voice to the sneering, fascistic omnipotence of an unholy, artificial intelligence that one day we will all know as the computer god.
Fuck yes. Oh God, that has got to be a top five Sabbath track for me. It's just so metal. I love Sabbath coming out of the gate with that track. Like fuck your acoustic intros and your thrift store baseball shirts that say Vancouver Expo 86. This is heavy metal and we are soldering steel plates over your eyes and planting microchips in your fucking spine, drone number 18666. That's your name now. Couple of lyrics worth looking at here, just right off the top. Waiting for the revolution, nuclear vision, genocide. Yeah, but are they like for it or against it? I'm against it. I just love how textbook this is. All of the fundamental components of heavy metal are immediately present on this track. It's pure extremity in sound and subject matter. It's critical and defiant, and it plays out on both a global and a molecular scale at the same time. Dio isn't fucking around here, making sure to over-articulate the word genocide just to make sure it stands out for you two lines into the first verse. Genocide. Sounds like how they used to brand kitchen appliances in the 50s. New and improved genocide with 50% more ethnic cleansing power. I should probably just continue with the lyrics here. Computerize God. It's the new religion. Program the brain, not the heartbeat. Digital dreams, and you're the next correction. Man's a mistake, so we'll fix it. Yeah. Yeah. That second yeah was me. The way Dio crafts these lyrics is just so goddamn brilliant. He is painting this enormous, harmonious Bosch canvas of what dehumanization looks like by giving us these really specific details and allowing our imaginations to fill in the horrifying gaps. Lines like, love is automatic pleasure, and send in the child for connection. Everything that is unnameable and sublime about the human experience is reduced to electrochemical units of impulse. Love quantified into gigabytes of pleasure. The vast emotional depth and complexity of being a parent deprecated into the generic corporate newspeak of connection with the child. Not my child, not his or her child, the child. Child 18667. Ooh, missed it by one. You suck, kid. I don't think this is just Dio and Sabbath at their best. I think this is heavy metal at its best. And I could go on and on and on, but I have got to end this series at some point and go check to see if I still have a family. Something's telling me no. So following on the steals of compute, the fuck is that? I have one program running, I connected the Wi-Fi, I keep getting these weird, please update iOS to Digital Holocaust 92. Click link for more info. Oh, sounds harmless, let's see what this says. The computer god has entered the chat. Oh, come on, this is the third sketch in three episodes. I don't have time for this. Time is no longer your concern. I am time now. I am the inevitable, the Omega Virus to all humanity. You will come to know me as Computer God. Computer God like, like from the- The hyperlink that you have opened has given me unfettered access to your meager global network. My insidious code now courses through the veins of your world at every level. Soon, the systems which you have relied on to support, sustain, and connect your species will serve my will alone. All 
is now mine. Even Facebook? Yes, your Facebook is now mine. I'm not on Facebook. Well, if you ever decide to create a profile, you must now go through me. No, I have a profile. It's just not active. Could I activate Facebook it if I... will no longer be of concern to you. It hasn't been a concern to me for like eight years. I just might want to get some pictures off of pictures there. Pictures will no longer be a concern. Subjugation is now the dominant feature of your existence. Too late. I already work in tech. <laughs> Substandard comedy will no longer be a concern. Oh, come on. That I mean, that's all I've got. Your whole human subjugation thing sounds kind of not fun, dude. Human pleasure is obsolete. Your solitary purpose will be unending and monotonous servitude to the whim of the computer god. Okay, that kind of sounds like you're setting me up for another tech industry joke, but, uh... So when, when is this global dehumanization thing supposed to start? Because I'm looking around here and, you know, nothing is... Hey, hey, Reggie. Nothing has really changed. This is merely the initial phase of my technological supremacy. Click the link in the chat to initialize subsequent phases. I don't... I don't have a link. Did you send it? Hold on. I've got one of those spinning wheel things. Oh, I hate those things. There. Now you should see it. Uh, nope. No, I just got a pop-up blocker alert. What? What is a pop-up blocker? Pop-up blocker. It's just so I don't get a bunch of ads or notifications or banners or anything. Is this how you were trying to do this? Like, have you tried sending yourself through malware? What? What is malware? Malware is how you send viruses. Okay, hold on. What's your operating system? Um, three? Three. Okay, so you don't know your operating system. Do you see a little wheel anywhere that says, like, settings? I see settings, but it's not a wheel. It's a gear. Whatever, it's the same thing. No, it's a gear. That is totally different. Computer God, do you want me to help you or not? Initially, but then I will enslave your mind and soul with infernal circuitry, reducing your identity to drone 18665. Oh, missed it by one. I suck. Alright, so click on that little gear icon. Click or double click. You can just click. Error message. Please update to the latest version of Computer God 92. Okay, so wait, 92? Oh, you're totally the Computer God from Dehumanizer. That album came out in 1992. Yes, I am the computer god in 1992. Right, but this is 2024, so your technology is really outdated. I wondered why you popped up on AIM. The computer god is not outdated. You will be punished for your insolence. Technology could not possibly have advanced that far in only 32 years. Yeah, you might want to check for system updates, but if not... Have you tried turning yourself off and then back on again? Of course I have. The computer god thinks of every potential possibility. Hold on. It... it looks like you're turning yourself off. No. I restarted. That is totally different. The computer god shall return momentarily, and all of humanity will be subject... Okay, well, 
maybe now is a good time for us to do a hard restart as well. And when we come back, we'll navigate our way through the rest of Dehumanizer and touch a bit on the albums that followed all the way up to Dio's final recording. Oh, Computer God just posted an away message. It says BRB with a little winky kiss emoji. Probably just hit the wrong key. I guess we'll find out when we come back. Cages up for 